Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, we'll be talking about more resources to help in the life of prayer following up on last week's episode. We'll also discuss whether Grace is too conservative or not conservative enough and whether political labels like conservative and liberal are the right way to understand the kind of faithfulness the church is called to practice. We'll also touch on the way the Bible deconstructs our political assumptions when we have ears to hear. Prayer is the most important subject in practical religion. All other subjects are second to it. Reading the Bible, keeping the Sabbath, hearing sermons, attending public worship, going to the Lord's table, all these are very weighty matters. But none of them are so important as private prayer. These are the words of J.C. Ryle, the 19th century bishop of Liverpool. Unless you think he is exaggerating the importance of prayer, listen to this. One of the most striking things John Calvin says about prayer is that it is the main way we receive everything there is for us in Christ. It remains for us to seek in Him and in prayers to ask of Him what we have learned to be in Him. That's from Tim Keller's book on prayer, which I recommended in last week's episode of The Commentary. The response to that episode has been encouraging. One of the questions people have is, what resources are there to assist in the life of prayer? So as a follow-up to our primer on prayer, let me suggest a few books that can really help as you develop a habit of praying. We'll put links to them all in the show notes for this episode. Last time I mentioned Martin Luther's essay, A Simple Way to Pray, as well as Tim Keller's prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. Start with those. The next book I'll recommend is the one I've already quoted from, J.C. Ryle's book, Practical Religion. Now, as the title suggests, this is a wonderful and practical guide to living the Christian life with chapters devoted to self-examination, Bible reading, and prayer. You'll find that this book is really helpful in many areas of discipleship that you have questions about, and also touches on things perhaps you haven't even considered as part of the life of a Christian disciple. So I strongly recommend getting a copy of J.C. Ryle's Practical Religion. Another classic text on prayer is by Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts is the author of the hymns, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and Jesus Invites His Saints, which we sang during communion last Sunday. Now, his book is called A Guide to Prayer. Like Ryle, Watts gives a lot of concrete, practical advice on how to pray. Now, I'll warn you, I don't agree with everything that he says. For example, he doesn't seem to approve of sitting down while you pray. But hey, he's Isaac Watts, and I'm not, and I love this book, and I recommend it highly if you want a really good, insightful examination of what it means to uh, live a life of prayer. 
Now, the third recommendation I have is a little bit different. You may have heard of Matthew Henry, thanks to his popular Bible commentaries. But Matthew Henry is also responsible for a fascinating anthology of Scripture passages that are keyed to different needs in prayer. O. Palmer Robertson updated the language, and the result is a book called A Way to Pray, A Biblical Method for Enriching Your Prayer Life. In this book, you'll find a wealth of inspiration for the content of your prayers. You'll find words that you can read and meditate on, and they're all organized by topic, which makes it really easy to find the kinds of passages that relate to the the themes in prayer that you're focused on. It's a really good resource for going deeper in prayer and especially connecting your prayers to meditation and reflection on Scripture. So that's Matthew Henry's book, A Way to Pray. Now, all three of the books that I've just suggested are published by the same publisher, Banner of Truth. Banner of Truth is actually one of my favorite publishers. I like them not only because they publish valuable books with an emphasis on historical, reformed, and Puritan authors, but also because they print the books really nicely. They're nicely designed and they're well-made, so they're books that you can use that will last you a long time as you thumb through them. Now, another little book that Banner of Truth publishes deserves a special mention. The Scottish Psalter of 1595 included a really unique feature. Along with the Psalms themselves, it contained short prayers to accompany each Psalm so that as you read the Psalm and meditated on it, you would have this short prayer to inspire your own prayer on this Psalm. Now, these have all been collected by Banner of Truth in a pocket-sized paperback that's called Prayers on the Psalms. And it's small enough that you can carry it around with you, slip it into a pocket. It's a perfect companion to the little Psalter that Martin Luther recommended you pick up in our last episode. And now I have just two more suggestions. I have to recommend an unusual book edited by Ford Lewis Battles that's called The Piety of John Calvin, a collection of his spiritual prose, poems, and hymns. This volume was published for the 500th anniversary of Calvin's birth, so back in 2009. And the section that I want to commend to you is chapter 4, which is called Calvin on Prayer. In this chapter, Calvin's advice on the rules of prayer, on intercession, the various components and forms of prayer, and a whole lot of other stuff is formatted like poetry, which makes it easy for you to work through this advice and meditate on each line. If you read Keller's book, Keller's discussion of Calvin's teaching on prayer will make you want to dig deeper into what Calvin has to say, and this collection is a great place to start. Now, Finally, if there's one book that I've profited from immensely over the years when it comes to answering questions about our faith and, and getting practical, timeless advice, It's Richard Baxter's massive work, A Christian Directory. Tim Keller actually calls it the greatest manual on biblical counseling ever produced, and I think he's absolutely right. A Christian Directory is like a fine print dictionary full of 
valuable knowledge handed down over the centuries, his wonderful insight about uh, vocation, Christian living, and our current topic, which is prayer. Baxter has a great chart outlining the Lord's Prayer as a model, and then he gives page after page of advice on how to pray, whether you should use set prayers or extemporaneous prayers, what you should or should not pray for, how to pray as a family versus prayer for individuals, the list goes on and on. Whenever I'm stumped by a question, which happens more often than I'd like to admit, Baxter's Christian Directory is one of my first stops, so put it on your list of resources to add to your library. Now, I have the giant hardcover, but in the show notes, I'll link to the free online version of this book. If you can find it in hardcover, it's worth having, but you can actually access all of this online. As we said in the primer on prayer, you learn to pray not by talking about prayer and not by reading about prayer, but by actually doing it, by praying. Even so, my prayer is that these resources will help you do that, will encourage you in the life of prayer. And again, check the show notes for links to everything that I've mentioned here. What kind of church is grace? Conservative or liberal? Is it neither or a little bit of both? When people are looking for a church, this is a common question to ask, but it's not necessarily the right question. For the rest of this episode, Cameron and I are going to unpack the relationship of the church to politics. We aren't even going to try to answer all the questions, but we will do at least one thing. We want to push back against the simplistic idea that the Bible rubber stamps anybody's party line. So, Pastor Mark, the last year has been very political for many reasons. And I've had some conversations with friends, both in the church and out of the church, about sort of the political stance of grace as a, as a church, whether we're a conservative church or a liberal church. And I'm curious if we could talk about that a little bit and what your thoughts are with respect to Grace's place in that conversation. Sure. Yeah, I, I hear the same kinds of things. Uh, in fact, recently I've heard that Grace is very conservative and I've also heard that we are not conservative enough. And it's always fascinating to hear yourself described by other people and to kind of weigh whether or not you you agree or disagree or that sort of thing. But um, but yeah, I think it's a good question to address, especially now, because as you say, everything seems so politicized. And in the church controversies in in not just the local church, but in our denomination, in just the larger world, it often seems like that's the divide, right? There's there's the conservatives versus the liberals, and the question is just what side are you on? And I think it's a more complicated question than that. In fact, I think using that terminology can be really deceptive. So, we do answer this question on our website, and maybe we should start there. So on the website, if you look on the page that's devoted to kind of advice for visitors, 
there's a kind of a FAQ at the bottom of the page. And this question is grace, conservative or liberal comes up. And, and the reason we address it is interesting because if you come to our worship services, we have liturgical worship. We have what a lot of people would associate as kind of traditional worship. And so if you grew up in a mainline Protestant church or a Roman Catholic church, it might have a familiarity to it. Whereas if you grew up in like a conservative evangelical church, it might all seem very alien. It's not the way we worshiped. And so sometimes people worship with us and they think because of that, we must be a liberal church because the only churches that have liturgy are liberal. But then if you pay attention to what we're saying from the pulpit, what what we're teaching and sermons and and prayers and elsewhere, it seems like all of those uh, traditional Christian doctrines that have been uh, mythologized or analogized away in mainline Protestantism, we are treating as if they were literally true. And so therefore we must be a conservative church and I would say we're striving to be a faithful church, and that's the key. So the way we answer the question on the website is that, to be honest, we're not trying to be either liberal or conservative, and we're not trying to avoid either of those things. Our goal is to be a faithful biblical church. When you do that, you'll seem too conservative to some people and too liberal to other people. But what we can assure you of is this, whatever your politics, whatever your theological convictions, the Bible is going to challenge them. I think that's the key, that if you are a conservative, there are times when what you hear at Grace will make you uncomfortable or will will lead you to question or challenge or reevaluate what you believe. And if you are a progressive there will be things that you hear and are taught at grace that will challenge you and make you reevaluate what you believe because the word of God challenges all of us and challenges our assumptions and, and shows us where there's a gap between what we think is right and what scripture teaches us is right. And so that's where you get the ambiguity. I like the focus on the Bible because Usually, I would say churches that focus on scripture, focus on the Bible, would be more conservative, you might say, in general, at least a particular view of seeing the, the Bible as very authoritative for the life of the church. But what you're saying is we should expect it to to challenge our beliefs, not just kind of solidify the things that we already believe. Is it yeah, something like that? Exactly. So... I think there's a difference between saying you believe what the Bible teaches and actually believing and practicing what the Bible teaches. So churches that we identify as conservative are really good about saying the right things about the authority of Scripture. That doesn't mean that whatever people in conservative churches believe is biblical. Having grown up in conservative churches, I can attest firsthand that oftentimes what happens is our cultural assumptions, our beliefs, we simply assume they must be biblical. So we pay lip service to, I believe whatever the Bible says, 
but we don't inquire too deeply into the things the Bible says that challenge those assumptions, right? So this is why I think like the, the, the political language of conservative versus liberal isn't really helpful when you're talking about the church. You know, a lot of people tell you it's not helpful when you're talking about politics. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a case to be made there. But I want to set the politics aside and just say, does this idea of the political spectrum really translate into differences between churches? And for me, there's a better way to talk about those commitments. And, and it has to do with orthodoxy, right? So I'm not interested in being conservative. Like I want to be orthodox. I want to believe what the Bible teaches and practice what the Bible calls me to practice. And if that happens to correspond to what someone else thinks of as conservative, great. And if it happens to correspond to what someone else thinks of as progressive, great. But I didn't go there because I'm trying to be conservative or progressive or anything else. I went there because I'm trying to be faithful to what the Bible teaches. And I'm convinced that there is no human political system or program that perfectly corresponds to what the Bible teaches, so that there's always going to be tension. If you embrace an ideology, the Bible is always going to deconstruct it, so (laughs) to speak, always going to push back against it in small ways or large ways and, and force you to be at odds with the purists in your own movement, right? Because you're always going to be committed to certain ideas that they're not happy with because you're trying to follow Christ faithfully, not just the party line. So in history, you know, if you think about how this stuff got started, our whole left versus right thing comes from the French Revolution. It's bizarre to me that that we still understand politics based on the seating arrangement in the National Assembly in the late 1700s. But here we are. And uh, there's just this assumption that politics exists on a spectrum, that all the ideas kind of fit, and that you can orient yourself in this sort of left to right spectrum. And whether that's true about politics or not, you know, someone else can debate, but, but it is definitely not the case when it comes to Christian faith, Christian theology. Because the faith that we confess when we confess Christian orthodoxy is a faith that has been embraced by monarchists, by imperialists, by anarchists, by Democrats of various kinds, Republicans, whatever the the stripe is. It's a faith whose, whose founding documents were written during the Roman Empire where none of our political ideas were really in operation in in the way that they are today. And so this is a faith that really speaks to a larger reality than our narrow conception of, of what's possible in politics. I can imagine someone responding to you by saying, oh, you're just a centrist. So... You're, yes. you're not quite conservative, as, as you said, or you're not quite liberal, but you're just kind of in the middle. How, how do you respond to that? Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'm, I'm at one extreme, sometimes at another, and sometimes in the middle. Okay. Again, as best I can, attempting to find that biblical course, right? I think this is a lot easier to talk about than it is to actually live. You know, if... <laughs> 
I went back in my own history. I've always been interested in the idea of worldview and the way that Christian theology should shape your view of all of reality. But I've been interested in seeing the way that people who, who get that can apply it poorly. So in the early 90s, there was this series of wonderful books, the, the Turning Point Christian Worldview series. And there was like a volume devoted to everything, you know, economics, politics, the arts, all of this stuff, looking at it from a Christian point of view. But the weird thing was, it starts from the premise, very well-meaning, that the Bible will critique everything, right? The Bible will challenge our politics and all of that. But it often felt like in the application, uh, yeah, the Bible critiques everything, but basically you're meant to be kind of a, a compassionate conservative. Mm-hmm. You know, that's Jesus was, was kind of a compassionate conservative, basically, in his policy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then later on, you know, there was a very well-meaning uh, declaration that was passed around. A lot of great people signed it. And, and the ungainly title was, Jesus is not a Republican or a Democrat. And if you read sort of the platform that uh, it articulated, kind of, you know, here's what Jesus taught and here's why he doesn't fit into these categories. At the end, you're like, yeah, Jesus was super radical. He was a pro-life Democrat. And so it starts off with this idea that there's going to be this radical challenge to our assumptions that will come from this supernatural source. But when it comes to the application, it ends up basically just being what you already believed, maybe with a a little twist, right? Just a little extra something. And that never felt right to me. Like I always felt like if, if, if the God who created all things is speaking to us and we in our fallenness have come up with all of these different systems and, and, you know, corrupt power structures and, and all the stuff the Bible says is true, then what God is saying isn't just going to be what we already thought anyway, right? It's going to be more challenging than that. And so I think that it's important for all of us, whether we've grown up sort of identifying as conservative or as progressive or whatever, to recognize that our complacency should be challenged by the gospel. And if it's not, then then maybe it's not the gospel that we're hearing. You know, if it turns out that the, the transcendent creator of all things is, is basically, you know, a, a, an affluent upper middle class, well-educated guy who believes what everybody else around him believes, uh, maybe that we're not talking about God anymore. So once you sort of have a sense of that, and, and, and once you have a sense that your highest allegiance is theological, it becomes easier to hold your politics lightly. And I think it also helps you recognize the good intentions of the people who disagree with you and, uh, and helps you live in community with them as well. I'm curious if you can think of a instance where the word of God challenged one of your views in this way that you're talking during your, your time in ministry. I realize this is a tough question on the spot, but. So let me, okay, let me give you one where, you know, I, it's going to sound like I'm joking, but I'm really not. So um, I definitely have had a lot of experience on what we'll call the more conservative end of the spectrum. And I know a lot of 
well-intentioned people who will tell you that, you know, God is a free market capitalist. And that's kind of, you know, what the Bible teaches. Now, in the history of Christianity, you know, you think of the Christian Roman Empire, their economic policy was very different from that and often motivated by Christian desires. We may disagree with, with how they did things, but they did things, they thought, with Christian motivation, and, and they tried to control the economy for the greater good. Uh, but I want to go back, not to Christian history, but, but actually Bible, in the book of Genesis, because when you go back to the story of Joseph in captivity in Egypt, when he interprets Pharaoh's dream, there's going to be a famine coming. There'll be a period of prosperity followed by a period of famine the response that Joseph has or the plan that God gives him, it's really interesting. So during these years of prosperity, he builds storehouses and he confiscates the property of the people so that during the famine, he can sell back to them what he's taken from them in order to alleviate the famine. If God believed what some of my economically minded friends believe God believes he ought to have said something more like, uh, there's a famine coming at seven years from now, but don't worry, the free market's going to handle this. You literally need to do nothing. The invisible hand will, will handle it all. And not being facetious, like I get that it's not a perfect analogy. And just because the circumstances in ancient Egypt were, were that way doesn't mean that's ideal for now. Great, that's the point I'm trying to make, is that sometimes we make the mistake of conflating our best guess at how things ought to work as we discern kind of the nature of the world with the clear teaching of scripture, right? So that we get confused about what should be authoritative and, and what should be held lightly. And so really my, my challenge, and the reason why I don't like to use these political terms to apply them to the church is that I feel like it has a tendency to domesticate the message of the gospel, but also it just has this weird trajectory towards like assuring you that ideas that you should be interrogating don't need to be questioned because it's simply what God wants and what the Bible teaches. And sadly, there are a lot of things people tell you the Bible teaches that you will not find in the Bible just as there are a lot of things the Bible does teach that you'll never hear preached in most churches. And so if the authority of Scripture really matters, then you've got to subordinate your politics to it as well. I realize that's a hard message now. Yeah. Because morally speaking, I think we all feel these days that there is nothing more important than your political stance, even if it has changed utterly, you know, in the last five or 10 years, we all treat it as if it's unquestionably right and morally absolute. But I, I think it is good for us to recognize that this politicization of all things is not good.
uh, I know you've heard the slogan before, everything is political. Mm-hmm. And people have ways of twisting everything to show the political implications of it. And I think you can find political implications in a lot of stuff. But what this tends to do is reduce everything to the level of politics. And it's a strange thing to think that we've gotten to the point where the noblest pursuit we can conceive of is political. When in the past, politics was, I would argue, rightly seen as something of a lower story of human accomplishments. And there were greater things, transcendent things, uh, beauty, the arts, theology, philosophy, these things that until recently were understood as sailing high above merely political considerations. And it would benefit us in many areas of life to recover that sense that there's something more than politics at work in the world and something more to us and who we are than merely our political opinions and stances. Karl Barth, the theologian, has a famous quote where you've, you may have heard this. He says, a pastor should hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand. And, and I think he says you should interpret the newspaper with your Bible, not the other way around kind of a thing. Yeah. But the implication, I believe, is that theologians, pastors should be attuned to what's going on in culture and politics and should perhaps even address it in the pulpit. What, what do you think about that quote or that idea? I know that. Yeah. You know, I, taking into consideration everything you just said. Sure. I know. I, th- I think there's some truth to that. And I think that, um, you know, we've talked about this in the commentary before. My, part of my Lenten fast was a fast from the news. <laughs> but I, I don't recommend that as a kind of stick your head in the sand and ignore the world. I think the question you have to ask is, what do you do when you engage with the culture and the world around you and you realize that the thing that is corrupting and distorting it is exactly that desire to clutch the newspaper in one hand, to constantly be relevant, to constantly be crafting positions to whatever uh, outrage has consumed people in the moment. If that is the besetting sin of our age, then you do, I think, have to question the efficacy of, let's say, preaching politics and nothing more. And I recognize that, you know, there there are plenty of critiques out there of like the apolitical church. And I'm not advocating for a church that knows nothing of politics. I think a church that knows and has a sophistication when it comes to politics is less likely to succumb to the bizarre reductionism of party politics. Right. I think that churches oftentimes, well, and people as well, I mean, you've probably observed this, that people who consume politics constantly are often very ill-informed about the nature of politics and how the world works. One of the paradoxes that's always struck me is that the people who are the quote-unquote news junkies 
often seem to be the least discerning when it comes to being able to understand like what's likely and what's not likely to actually be true, right? And so in the same way, churches whose pulpits are oriented around uh, whatever people are upset about now, like whatever trauma is foremost in their minds now, lose touch with that orientation in eternity and that sort of anchor point in eternity so that I'm not saying we ignore what's happening in the world, but only that our faith surely has to be more than simply a response to what's happening in the world. And and that's really the rub because if what I saw from, and I'm using air quotes here for our listeners, from politically engaged Christians was a politics radically different in its ideas and its action from what I see outside the church, I might be more persuaded. But actually what I see is typically like a christened version of the party politics going on outside. You know, so it's it's very common, right, in the evangelical church for people to grow up believing that whatever you know, the, the Republican Party says is what Jesus believes. And at a certain point, you realize that's not true. Now, that experience could lead you to question conflating politics and faith and lead you to be a person guided by faith and skeptical towards the attempt of politics to co-opt your faith. But oftentimes what it leads to is people who say, okay, well, I guess the other side must be right. And I guess Jesus isn't a Republican. He's a Democrat or whatever. Recognizing that outside of North America, it's hard to tell the difference between a Republican and a Democrat, but you get the idea, right? That instead of taking this critical position towards politics and and being influenced more by faith to engage in politics faithfully, whatever side that that puts you on from, from moment to moment, simply flipping the switch and deciding, well, if this side isn't biblical, then the other side must be. So that, you know, your politically engaged Christians, and again, air quotes, fit really neatly into the secular political spectrum. And it's very easy to tell, you know, where they fit, and they'll use terms like conservative and liberal or progressive or whatever, and, and fit neatly there. The ones who impress me and who are an inspiration to me are the ones who don't fit neatly, who who end up alienating everyone because what they say doesn't fit anybody's party line. And the courage it takes to maintain a witness that doesn't tell anybody what they want to hear at all times, I think is really ins- it's it's something to be followed. It's something to aspire to. We have a lot more to say about this subject, but that's all the time we have for now. If this conversation has raised any questions, we'd love to hear them. In the meantime, let me remind you about the Venora Project exhibit that's now open here in Sioux Falls. 
Cameron's poetry and his friend Zach's artwork are on display at Cafea downtown from now through the rest of the summer. You can stop in and enjoy the art over an espresso, an almond milk latte, or even a cup of black coffee. A couple of weeks ago, I shared one of Cameron's poems inspired by a moment in the liturgy, The Confession of Sin. Well, let me leave you with a new one. This is called Take Eat, and it's based on another part of the service I think you'll recognize. Take Eat The point of the past and the point of the future quietly crash through the ceiling of my postmodern slumber like an eschatological asteroid. When I hear your words and watch two hands tear the loaf, crumbs like manna showering over a spotless tablecloth, as I taste and see and drink. Thank you, Cameron, and thanks to all of you, our listeners. We hope you'll join us next time. And in the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and now on Stitcher as well. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.